Tonight we begin in Matthew chapter 27, and just like Matthew chapter 26, it's a very long chapter. Matthew chapter 27 has 66 verses, so there's no way that we're going to cover it all this evening. It'll be over two evenings that we study Matthew chapter 27. But not only is it big for the number of verses in this chapter, it's a very heavy chapter. As you would expect, it deals with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're going to pick it up now at verse 1. Last time we were together, we saw in chapter 26 how Jesus was betrayed and arrested and taken to the Sanhedrin, or at least to a hurriedly gathered group of the Sanhedrin during the night, and how Peter betrayed him. Now we come to it in chapter 27 where we read, When morning came, All the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now this morning session of the chief priests and the elders of the people, this was the official gathering of the Sanhedrin following the informal and might I say illegal gathering that was recorded the night before. It's also described for us in Luke chapter 22. And as Luke shows, this morning trial was essentially the same as the previous, more informal examination of Jesus that was illegally held during the night. So they met hurriedly, they pronounced a sentence over him, and they sent Jesus off after binding him. As it says in verse 2, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Now, They did this because they did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. The Romans took the right of capital punishment away from the Jews, and they were not supposed to exercise this. Now, on some occasions they did. We read in the book of Acts later on that in an absolute rage, in mad anger, the Sanhedrin actually stoned Stephen, the first martyr of the church, to death. We read about that in the book of Acts. But they weren't supposed to. And here, especially because of the increased Roman presence in the city of Jerusalem, because it was Passover time, they were very careful to obey the rules. You see, this man who was the governor of Judea, his name was Pontius Pilate. He was appointed to the position of prefect or procurator by um, Tiberius Caesar in the year A.D. 26. These prefects, they governed small, troubled areas, and in judicial matters, They had powers very much like uh, the more powerful proconsuls and imperial legates. They had the power of life and death in their judgment. Now, ordinarily, these governors or procurators of Caesarea, excuse me, lived in Caesarea on the coast. But it was their custom to move in from the much more pleasant city of Caesarea into Jerusalem during feast time, along with a detachment of soldiers, so that they could keep close eye over the Jewish people. Now, what kind of man was Pontius Pilate? Well, we have contemporary records. Philo, the ancient Jewish scholar from Alexandria, described Pilate like this. He said, his corruption, his acts of insolence, His rapine, his habit of insulting people, his cruelty, and his continual murders of people untried and uncondemned, and his never-ending gratuitous and most grievous inhumanity. Pilate was a brutal man. 
And so the Jewish leaders had reason to expect a favorable result when they went to Pilate, because secular history shows us that he was a cruel and ruthless man, almost completely insensitive to the moral feelings of other people. Surely they thought this Pilate will put Jesus to death. Now, Pilate would not be interested in the charge under which Jesus was condemned by the Sanhedrin. If you remember from last time we were together, or from your readings elsewhere in the Gospels, you remember that the Sanhedrin convicted Jesus under the charge of blasphemy. Now, if these Jewish leaders tried to bring a charge of blasphemy before Pilate, Pilate would say, I don't care about blaspheming your gods. Pilate himself had probably been guilty of blaspheming the Jewish gods. He didn't care about such a charge at all. So all the chief priests and the elders essentially brought Jesus to Pilate with three false accusations. Now, Matthew doesn't mention them, but Luke does in Luke chapter 23, verse 2. These were the three accusations. Number one, that Jesus was a revolutionary. Number two, that he incited people to not pay their taxes. And number three, that he claimed to be a king in opposition to Caesar. Now, of those three charges, Pilate would be very interested in, and those were the things that the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of when they brought him to Pilate. Now, before we continue the narrative of what happened between Jesus and Pilate, starting at verse 3, we have to read about the very miserable end of Judas. By the way, you should notice that this happens out of order somewhat. The, the, the story of Judas didn't end right at this very same time, but Matthew is putting it here sort of as a contrast to finish up the story of Judas. Verse 3. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Very interesting what happens to Judas, right? Verse 3 tells us that Judas was filled with remorse, that he was remorseful. Now, please notice, there is a difference both in the ancient Greek and in the English translations in front of us. There is a difference between being remorseful and being repentant. To be remorseful means that you're sorry about your sin, but you don't necessarily change the conduct. You see, even though Judas knew that he did a wrong thing, he says it right there in verse 4, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He was more sorry for the result of his sin than he was for the sin itself. You know, there's a huge difference between being sorry about your sin and in being sorry for your sin. We can all be sorry about the bad consequences that our sin has upon our life, right? But to be sorry that you have sinned against the living God, not just for how it has affected your life in a bad way, but for the sin itself, that is a different thing entirely. So what did Judas do? 
He went and he threw the money into the temple. By doing this, Judas wanted to implicate the priests in his crime. It was his way of saying, you also are guilty of this. This isn't just my blood money, it's your blood money. And he wanted to put it off upon them. It was the act of a very desperate man. He wanted them to take back the money. He was hoping that it would be sort of an atonement for his own sin. I want you to notice something else. Verse 3 tells us that Judas did this seeing that he, that is Jesus, had been condemned. This suggests the thought that maybe Judas expected that Jesus would miraculously deliver himself from the arrest and from his captors. But when he saw that he was condemned, when he saw that it was actually going to end with Jesus being crucified, Judas was so filled with remorse and he carried back to the chief priests the price of blood that he had received for Jesus. One other thing I want you to notice. Look again at the phrase in verse 4 where it says, innocent blood. Judas himself from his own lips proclaimed that Judas, excuse me, that Jesus was innocent. Now, Now please think about this. If there was any person in the world that had a motive for finding fault with Jesus, it would be Judas, right? Wouldn't Judas be grasping for some excuse why he betrayed Jesus? And by the way, remember that Judas had been with him daily for the last three years. He saw him in public. He saw him in private. If there was anybody who could have said, well, in some small way, Jesus deserved this, it would have been Judas. But Judas's own testimony, the testimony from his lips is, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So what does he do? He takes the money, he throws it into the temple. And what did the priests do? They say it's not lawful to put them into the treasury because it's the price of blood in verse six. What hypocrisy from these priests. They did not want to defile themselves with the price of blood, even though it was a price that they themselves paid. That money came out of their own hand and into the hand of Judas. And now when Judas wants to get it back, they say, oh, this money's polluted. We can't take it. Priests, you polluted it. But this shows the kind of hypocrisy that religious people are capable of. And so what did Judas do? In his great despair, verse 5 tells us that Judas went and hanged himself. In his unrepentant remorse and despair, Judas committed suicide. John chapter 17, verse 12, Jesus called Judas the son of perdition, the man, so to speak, appointed to destruction. And we are very sure that he went to eternal punishment. Now, it's interesting that in verse 5, Matthew tells us that Judas went and hanged himself. And some people say that this is at variance or a contradiction of Acts chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, which says that Judas fell headlong into a field, burst open in the middle, and all of his entrails or guts gushed out. Most people reconcile the two accounts between Matthew and Acts by saying that Judas hanged himself And some way or another, his body came down from the rope. Maybe the rope broke. Maybe his body just sort of rotted and decayed and swolled up in the hot sun. And it just decomposed and fell down. And then he burst open in the open field. But then verse 9, it was fulfilled what was spoken of by Jeremiah the prophet. And near he gives this description. Now, there's been a lot of question about this quotation attributed to Jeremiah 
Because even though Matthew says it was Jeremiah, the quotation is found in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. Matthew clearly says that it was the word spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, even though we find it recorded in Zechariah. Now, what do we make of this? Well, some people suggest that it might have been a copyist's error. In other words, perhaps Matthew wrote Zechariah, but an early copyist mistakenly put Jeremiah instead, and this very rare mistake was repeated in subsequent copies. That's a possibility, I suppose. I don't put much weight in that. Some people think that Jeremiah spoke the prophecy and Zechariah recorded it. In other words, this was the word spoken by Jeremiah, but recorded by Zechariah. I suppose that's a possibility as well. And some other people think that the Old Testament scriptures were divided into different scrolls. In other words, they wouldn't have a different scroll for individual books of the Old Testament, such as Genesis and Exodus, but they would put them in large scrolls. And the scroll that contained the book of Zechariah began with the book of Jeremiah, and it was called the Scroll of Jeremiah. Some people think that. Well, any one of these three solutions could easily explain this. But on to verse 11. Now Jesus comes before Pontius Pilate. Now, I can't help, and you've heard me say this many times, but it's probably no more true than when I'm teaching through a passage just like this. When I read or teach the Bible, it's like a movie running in my head. And can't you just see this? Can't you just see Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, standing before this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate? There are the religious leaders on one side. There's a multitude, a crowd on another side. There are the Roman soldiers around because Pilate would not have come to Jerusalem without a healthy detachment of Roman soldiers. And it says, verse 11, now Jesus stood before the government. Let me remind you what I said before. History shows us that Pilate was a cruel and ruthless man. He was unkind to the Jews, and he was contentious of almost everything except for raw power. Here, though, he seems out of character in the way that he treats Jesus. The the Pilate in the Gospel of Matthew and in the other Gospels seems strangely sensitive, strangely ambivalent. It's clear that Jesus profoundly affected this harsh and cruel man. So what does he say? Look at it here, verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him not a word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Pilate looked at Jesus and he asked him straightforwardly, Are you the king of the Jews? These men, these religious leaders, they accuse you of being a king in opposition to Caesar. They say you're a revolutionary. They say that you want to be king and you want to dethrone Caesar. Are you the king of the Jews? Now you can see why the religious leaders had a great interest in showing Jesus to be a revolutionary against the Roman Empire. 
Therefore, Pilate asked this very simple question. But we can only imagine what wonder, or excuse me, or we can only wonder what Pilate thought when he first set his eyes on Jesus. He saw this man, let me remind you, who was already bloodied and beaten. Jesus didn't look especially regal or majestic as he stood before Pilate. You know how royalty is supposed to look, right? They're supposed to have just sort of this, this uh, air about them that says, I'm important, I'm a great person. That's how a king is supposed to be. Jesus did not look very king-like. Not with the bruises on his face, not with the blood running down his lip, not with how he looked disheveled and beaten before him. So the Roman governor was probably sarcastic, maybe even ironic when he said, are you the king of the Jews? Now, it's also interesting, Pilate doesn't seem to be alarmed, right? Pilate doesn't seem to be worried by Jesus. Apparently, at the first glance, he saw that the man before him was not likely to be a revolutionary, not likely to be a pretender to royalty in any way that would really trouble Pilate. Therefore, one Greek commentator, Bruce, says this. He says, the you is in an emphatic position in verse 11, and it suggests that Pilate asked the question this way, you, the king of the Jews? What, you? You don't look like a king to me. Where's your army? Where are your courtiers? Where's your dignity? Where's this great bearing that you have? Now, I'm not trying to say that, that Jesus didn't look like he was dignified in front of Pilate. Oh, no, he did. But he didn't have the dignity that royalty has, you know, that, that nose lifted up in the air and that I'm above you all sort of attitude. No. Instead, all Jesus said to him is found in verse 11 where Jesus said, it is as you say. Well, it's true, isn't it? He was the king of the Jews. He was the Messiah. And if the Messiah is anything, he has the inheritance of the throne of David. Jesus was indeed the king of the Jews. And so he just says simply, Pilate, it is as you say. There was no majestic defense. There was no instant miracle to save his own life. How Jesus easily could have done that, right? Pilate, not only am I the king of the Jews, but if you got any bread around here, I can feed all your soldiers and all the multitude that's right here. But Pilate, not only am I the king of the Jews, but, but that, that blind man over there, I can heal him instantly. Pilate, not only am I the king of the Jews, you can think about miracle after miracle, sign after sign that Jesus could perform, but he did not. Instead, he gave the same simple reply that he gave to the high priest. It is as you say. In verse 13, the amazed Pilate asked after he heard all the accusations from the religious leaders. They started shouting. They started screaming. Well, well he did this. Well, he is, uh, did the other thing. He, he said this. He said that. Pilate asked him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? In verse 13, Pilate could not believe that such a strong, dignified man, even as beaten and bloody as he was, would stand silent at all these accusations. Right? I mean, wouldn't a real man answer back his accusers? Wouldn't a real man like Jesus say, how dare you say that of me? How dare you accuse me of that lie? That's a falsehood. Would not somebody defend himself? Instead, Pilate was amazed by this, and verse 14 tells us that the governor marveled greatly. I like what Charles Spurgeon explained why Pilate marveled greatly. He said this, 
He had seen in captured Jews the fierce courage of fanaticism. In other words, this was not the first Jewish revolutionary to appear before Pilate as a judge. He had seen them before, but he recognized that Jesus was different. I'll start again with Spurgeon's quote. He had seen in captured Jews the fierce courage of fanaticism, but there was no fanaticism in Christ. He had also seen in many prisoners the meanness or the lowness which will do or say anything to escape from death. But he saw nothing of that about our Lord. He saw in him unusual gentleness and humility combined with majestic dignity. He beheld submission blended with innocence. If there was any impression that Pilate had when he looked at Jesus despite all the accusations, despite the fact that he was bloodied and beaten, Pilate looked at Jesus and he said, this is an innocent man. Pilate knew it. So, verse 15, he hopes to release Jesus. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. So Pilate recognizes that there was a custom at that time. And the custom was simply this. At the feast time, the Passover, the great feast, where there were hundreds of thousands of additional visitors in Jerusalem at that time for the great feast, Pilate, to, to, to make the Jewish multitudes happy, would release one prisoner. Now, again, there would be many political prisoners of the Jews there in the Roman jails that Pilate supervised. So it was a custom that they would simply release one of these prisoners. And judging that there was something different, something innocent about Jesus, Pilate hoped that this custom of releasing a prisoner might help solve the problem. And so verse 16 tells us that there was a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us, but Mark does. What made Barabbas notorious? Mark tells us that he was one of several insurrectionists, in other words, a violent revolutionary, who had committed murder in his revolutionary activities. We would today regard a man like Barabbas something like a revolutionary terrorist. That's what he was. And why did he say? Well, let's forget about Barabbas. I'll try to release Jesus instead. Why? Verse 18 tells you. Look at it carefully. He says, for he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Pilate saw straight through the manipulative words of the religious leaders, and he knew that their motive was envy. It wasn't any other concern. So what does he do? He goes, i got to find a way to release Jesus. How do I get rid of him? Who do you want me to release you, Barabbas or Jesus? And Pilate's hoping that the crowd will say Jesus. He, he probably framed it in a way that suggested that Jesus should be the choice. But notice this in verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat... There he is, right there. Pilate sitting on the judgment seat. Pilate sitting in judgment of Jesus. Can I just say this? Even though Pilate sat on the judgment seat, he failed to give Jesus justice. Pilate had all the evidence he needed to do the right thing and release Jesus. He saw the strength and dignity of Jesus, and he knew that this was no criminal or revolutionary. 
He knew that it was no just charge that brought Jesus before his judgment seat. He knew that it was the envy of the religious leaders. He saw that Jesus was a man so at peace with himself and with his God that he didn't need to answer a single accusation. And as Luke chapter 23 verse 4 says, he had already declared Jesus an innocent man. Before this point in the trial, Luke tells us that Pilate had said this, I find no fault in this man. Listen, how would you like to stand before a judge and the judge points at you and says, I find no fault in this person. What would you say if the judge said that? You'd say, hooray, I'm free. Hooray, they're not going to put me in jail. Hooray, I'm not going to be punished or fined because the judge finds no fault in me. Pilate had already declared Jesus to be innocent. So even though he sat on the judgment seat, he administered the opposite of justice. He failed to give the accused justice. So let's begin here. Verse again, 19 again. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Now, in addition to all those evidences that Pilate had, he could tell just by looking at Jesus. He could tell by looking at the religious leaders who brought him to him because of envy. He could tell and assess that this was an innocent man despite all or beyond all of that. How unexpected is it that right in the midst of the trial, a message comes from Pilate's wife and his wife sent to him saying this, saying, I have had a dream and I've suffered many things today in a dream because of him. What a remarkable thing this was. We can only conjecture what Pilate's wife saw in this dream. Maybe she saw Jesus, an innocent man, crowned with thorns and crucified. Maybe she saw him coming in glory with the clouds of heaven. Maybe she saw Jesus sitting at the great white throne judgment, judging her husband Pilate. I don't know what she saw in this dream. But we know that the vision of Jesus that she had in the dream made her suffer. It hurt her. Look at what she says in verse 19. I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. It was a remarkable occurrence. Here's Pilate's wife. She, she wakes late in the morning. She's disturbed by the dream. And she asks where her husband is. And her attendants tell her that he's called away early to his business as a governor because the religious leaders of Jerusalem sent over a prisoner for judgment. And so immediately she asks a messenger to go to her husband with the news of the dream. I don't know how you are with dreams. I forget almost all my dreams. Sometimes I'll remember them for a moment when I wake up, but this dream had a way of impressing itself so much upon Pilate's wife that not only did she remember it, but she immediately and with great urgency, she acted upon it. I don't know how many of you ever called somebody up or sent somebody a message because of a dream that you had, much less a judge who's standing before a prisoner right at that very time. But that's exactly what Pilate's wife did. And because of all of this, there was a great urgency about her message to Pilate. She was bold to send it, and she implored him to simply have nothing to do with this man Jesus. Let him go. Send him away. Don't punish him even a little. It was an influence, a warning 
that Pilate tragically ignored. I want you to see in this, this was God's merciful message to Pontius Pilate. Didn't God speak to him in so many ways? This man is innocent, let him go. You can see it with your own eyes, Pilate. You can see it in the priests. You can sense it from your own knowledge of the law. You've said it with your own lips. And now I have given a divine dream to your wife. And it was important enough to her to send an urgent message to you to tell you about it. It was a merciful message that Pilate rejected. But look now at verse 20 where it simply says, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. You see, God was influencing Pilate in many ways, through his own eyes, through his own judgment, through his own words, through his own perceptions, through the message from his wife. But the chief priests and the elders knew how to influence Pilate as well. They knew how to do it, not through his own judgment of Jesus, not through his wife, and not through the religious leaders themselves directly. What did the religious leaders do? They incited the crowd and pushed them to push Pilate in a certain direction by the voice of the multitudes. What a tragic figure Pilate is. A man who knows the right thing to do, and he knows it by many convincing ways, yet he will do the wrong thing, a terrible thing, and he does it being pushed by the multitudes. So what do the crowds do? Look at verse 21. Then the governor answered and said to them, now he's shouting to the crowd, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him him be crucified. Friends, the voice of the crowd is not always the voice of God. The the mob did not answer Pilate's request for evidence, for proof, when he said, what evil has he done? They only continued to shout for Jesus' death. And a matter of fact, they asked for more than the death of Jesus. They shouted for him to be executed by torture through crucifixion. Isn't that a strange call on the lips of a Jewish crowd? Not only kill him, but crucify him. Not only execute him, but kill him in the most painful and humiliating and degrading way imaginable. Now, I want you to notice something in verse 22. Look at it carefully. It says, and they all said to him. There were none in the crowd who silently sympathized with Jesus. They all said, let him be crucified. Now, why did they do this? Well, one reason why they did this is they did it under the guidance of the religious leaders. It was the religious leaders that pushed the crowd to do this. These religious leaders that throughout the Gospel of Matthew have been in conflict with Jesus, now in their murderous rage and envy of Jesus, they push the crowd to a fever pitch where they scream for the crucifixion of Jesus. I like what Spurgeon said. 
He said that he would accuse humanity of the greatest foolishness in crucifying Jesus because when they crucified Jesus, they crucified their best friend. Here's Jesus, the most loving and best friend that any of those people could ever have who were shouting out his name to crucify him, the friend of sinners who came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost. The madness of the multitude led them to take this man who was the friend of sinners and to call for him to not only be executed, but executed by crucifixion. They wanted Barabbas instead of Jesus. Would you not say today that people today still reject Jesus and they choose another? Their Barabbas might be lust, it might be drunkenness, it might be the self and the comforts of this life, but this crazy choice is made every day while some people prefer the lusts of their flesh before the life of their souls. And so they shouted out, Barabbas, Barabbas, that's who they wanted freed. I want you to think about it for a moment. The cross that Jesus was crucified was probably intended for Barabbas. You know, there were three crosses on that day, were there not? Were there not three crosses set up on Calvary that day? Two thieves who were scheduled for their execution and Barabbas. Barabbas was removed from that cross and Jesus was put upon the cross that was meant for Barabbas. If there was any person in the world who knew Jesus died for me, it should have been Barabbas. He should have known. Of course, we don't have a single inkling whether or not Barabbas understood the depths of this. But it's true that Jesus literally died as a substitute for Barabbas. Now, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. How out of character for Pilate. Pilate was the brutal Roman government who didn't care a thing about Jewish sensibilities. Pilate was the man who who would do anything and just say, Well, forget you Jewish people. I'll do whatever I want to please. You, you tell me to release Barabbas? I don't want to release Barabbas. I want to release Jesus. But strangely, Pilate bent to the will of the crowd, but not before he tried to deny his responsibility. You can just see it, can't you? Can't you see the bowl of water right there on the platform before the crowd? And Pilate goes and he ceremonially washes his hands in innocence, saying, my hands are clean of this man. Pilate wanted to say, listen, it's out of my control. Personally, I wish this Jesus no harm, but you know, these things happen. Yet the power and the responsibility of what to do with Jesus rested with him. For Pilate to say, I find no fault in him, that was not enough. Looking for a clever solution in releasing a prisoner at the Passover was no solution. Washing his hands was meaningless. He could not escape responsibility, and he is forever associated with the crime of sending Jesus to the cross. It's echoed throughout history in the creeds. Do you know the Apostles' Creed? It says that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Repeated throughout the centuries. 
people have recognized Pontius Pilate's role in sending Jesus to death. It's interesting. It's interesting the mixture of cowardice, right? You could say Pilate was a coward, right? He was a coward because he bent before the crowd. He did what he knew to be wrong because the multitude shouted out to crucify Jesus. He should have took courage and done what was right. So at the one hand, he was a coward. On the other hand, he was a man of sinful courage because he was afraid, or not afraid, I should say, to poke his finger in the eye of God, so to speak. So what did he do? Verse 24, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. Hidden in Pilate's attempt at self-justification there was a declaration of Jesus' innocence. What did he call Jesus in verse 24? He looked at Jesus and he said, this just person. He admitted that Jesus was an innocent man. Hey, everybody, I know he's innocent, but I'm going to send him to the cross because that's what you want me to do. Just because Pilate said, I am innocent, doesn't mean that he was innocent, and he was not indeed. Let me tell you something very strange that I found out in my preparation for this evening's study. I found out that it's very strange to say that in later periods of Christian anti-Semitism, some Christians tried to rehabilitate Pilate because they wanted to put all the blame for Jesus' crucifixion upon the Jewish people. Some even said that Pilate and his wife became Christians. And it's interesting to see that according to William Barclay, to this day the Coptic church in Egypt ranks both Pilate and his wife as saints. Now that is surely misguided. This man was guilty of the blood of Jesus. But then again, So was the crowd. Did you see what it says there in verse 25? The crowd cried out. It says, all the people answered and said, his blood be upon us and on our children. You have to admit, they really had no understanding what they asked for. They didn't understand the glory of Jesus' cleansing blood and how wonderful it would be to have his blood on us and on our children. But they also didn't understand the enormity of the crime of calling for the execution of the sinless Son of God and the judgment that would be visited upon their children some 40 years later in the destruction of Jerusalem. Now let me say before we move on to verse 26, that verse 25, this statement, His blood be upon us and on our children. This is one of the passages wrongly used as a justification by wicked and misguided Christians who persecute or or, or allow persecution of the Jews. You, You see, this is what they've reasoned. They said, well, listen, they took full responsibility. They are, and this is the term that has been used through the centuries, Christ killers, and they should be persecuted as Christ killers. Listen, let me tell you something that even if this did put these people and their descendants under a curse, and I would debate that it did, but even if it did put them under a curse, it was never the duty of the church to bring this curse to bear upon the Jews. Instead, as God promised Abraham, do you remember that in Genesis chapter 12? 
I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Those Christians who were wicked and foolish enough to curse the Jews have indeed been cursed by God in one way or another. So, what did Pilate do? He started the mechanism to send Jesus to the cross. Verse 26, he released Barnabas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The blows from a scourging came from a whip with many leather strands upon it. And many of the strands of leather, perhaps not everyone, but several of them, had sharp pieces of bone or metal at the ends. The scourging would reduce the back to raw flesh, and it was not unusual for a criminal to die from the scourging even before the crucifixion. Now, under Roman practice, the blows of scourging would lessen as the criminal confessed his crimes. They would whip the prisoner, and if the prisoner confessed his crimes and seemed very sorry, they would lessen the blows of the scourging and send them off to crucifixion. But Jesus remained silent. He had no crimes to confess. And so the blows finished until full, uh, with full strength, I should say, they continued until probably the man bearing that whip was tired of beating Jesus. Then verse 27. Then the soldiers of the garrison took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And they had twisted a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and they took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took off the robe. They took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Isn't it interesting? Verse 27 tells us that they gathered the whole garrison around him. Now, an entire garrison of soldiers could be 600 men. That's probably what was back at Caesarea. Pilate probably only brought a portion, maybe 100 or 200 men with him from Caesarea to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. But again... You have a group of 100, maybe 200 soldiers, the whole garrison that was there in Jerusalem at the time, gathered around mocking and making sport at Jesus. One prisoner, one harmless man. They would only need a regular group of four soldiers to carry out the execution, yet they gathered the whole garrison around him. And it wasn't to prevent his escape. It wasn't to prevent a hostile crowd from rescuing him. It wasn't to keep the disciples away. The disciples were cowering in fear. No, no, no. They did this out of sheer cruelty. So what do they do? Verse 29 tells us that they mocked him. They cried out, King of the Jews, and everything about this was intended to humiliate Jesus. The the Jewish rulers had already mocked Jesus as what they considered to be a false Messiah. That was in Matthew chapter 26, verses 67 and 68. But now the Roman powers mocked him as a king. So verse 28, they stripped him. When a prisoner was crucified, they were often nailed to the cross completely naked just to increase their humiliation. 
Now, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet, but his humiliation has begun, and he was publicly stripped. And then they put a scarlet robe on him. You know, kings and rulers often wore scarlet because the dyes to make that fabric were expensive. The scarlet robe was intended as a cruel irony. Then verse 29 tells us that they twisted a crown of thorns. You know, kings wear crowns, but not crowns of torture. And the specific thorn bushes of this region have long, hard, sharp thorns. This was a crown that cut, pierced, and bloodied the head of the king who wore it. Verse 29 says that they put a reed in his hand. You know, kings hold scepters, but glorious, ornate scepters that symbolize their power. In their mockery of Jesus, they gave him a scepter, a thin, weak reed. And then verse 29 says that they bowed the knee before him. Kings are honored, right? So they offered mocking worship to the king and they cried out, verse 29 tells us, Hail, king of the Jews. You greet a king with a royal title, do you not? So in their spite, they mocked Jesus with this title. It was meant to humiliate Jesus, but by the way, can I tell you that it was also meant to humiliate the Jews. It was like saying, look at the Jews, this is their king. This is how miserable the Jewish people are. This is their king. Listen, when you think about it, weren't they very creative in the way that they mocked him? You almost wonder if they didn't sit around thinking about it. Now let's see, how can we humiliate this man the most? They were creative, they were invented, and would to God that the worshipers of Jesus put as much energy and creativity into honoring the king as these people did into mocking him. Verse 30, it's hard to read. Then they spat on him, and they took the reed and struck him on the head. You see, now it's shifted from mockery to cruelty. They seized the ironic scepter, they took off the mock royal robe, and they began to hurl their spit and their fists at the head of Jesus. You see, even the hands that drove the nails into the hands of the cross did only what they were commanded to do, right? Think of the Roman soldier that that, that took the nail and bound and and affixed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross. Friends, he only did what he was commanded to do. They spat in his face and mocked him just for the pleasure of of doing it. You've got to say that this is the height of man's spiritual insanity. But wouldn't you say today that it's possible for people to mock Jesus today? But what did they do when they mocked Jesus? They set him up as a pretend king, but they did not honor him as you would honor a king. Isn't it tragic to say that there are many people today who take the name Christian who set Jesus up as a pretend king? Oh, they pretend to honor him. They pretend to give him some credit. But they sort of have a Sunday religion. It's forgotten in the week. The the, the scepter that they would put in the hand of Jesus is just a reed. The crown that they would put on the head of Jesus is just a false crown. They've insulted him. Oh, no, Jesus can be mocked today. Now, I wonder, I wonder how Matthew 
heard about all this? Could it not be that some of these soldiers who mocked Jesus later came to faith in him? Could it not be that Matthew and others heard this story from the soldiers themselves? It's entirely possible. But verse 31 tells us that they led him away to be crucified. The march of the criminal to the place of crucifixion was useful advertising for Rome. You see, it warned potential troublemakers that this was their fate if they should challenge Rome. Normally, a centurion on horseback led the procession and a herald would shout the crime of the condemned. And when they would lead the criminal to the place of crucifixion, they wouldn't take the shortest route. They would take a long, circular route so everybody in the streets, everybody in the neighborhood would know this is what you do if you anger the Roman governor. And as Jesus was led away to be crucified, he was, like most victims of crucifixion, he was forced to carry the wood that he would hang upon. Now, the weight of an entire cross would typically be something like 300 pounds or 135 kilos. But the victim would not carry an entire cross. I don't mean to uh, upset anybody's visions of what this was because you've probably seen this many times in a movie or a painting or something like that. You've seen somebody carrying an entire cross. That was not customary. Normally, the victim would simply carry the horizontal piece, the crossbar of the cross. The vertical piece would remain at the place of crucifixion and they would just have the prisoner carry the horizontal piece. That could weigh anywhere from 75 to 100 pounds. That's 35 to 55 kilos. When the victim carried the crossbar, usually, not always, but usually he was stripped naked and his hands were often tied to the wood. And so they would go. They would go to this place where the upright beams of the cross were there already in the ground and there they would crucify the prisoner. I want you to reflect on something that Jesus said earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, right here at verse 31. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 this, If anyone desires to come after me, that's us, right? I think the people I'm speaking to tonight, I think of myself, we desire to come after Jesus, so this is for us. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. When Jesus said this, this was exactly the scene that he had in mind when Jesus' hands perhaps were tied to that cross that he would carry to the place of execution. Everybody knew what the cross was. It was an unrelenting instrument of death and only death. The cross was not about religious ceremonies. It wasn't about traditions. It wasn't about religious feelings. The cross was a way to execute people. But in these 20 centuries after the death of Jesus, I fear that we have sanitized, we've ritualized the cross. How would we receive it today if Jesus had said, walk down death row daily and follow me? Friends, taking up your cross wasn't a journey. It was a one-way trip. There was no return ticketing. It was never a round trip. 
You went to the cross to die. Verse 32. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. The man that they forced to help Jesus carry his cross was probably a visitor for Jerusalem there for the Passover feast. He came from as far as Cyrene in North Africa. That was something like 800 miles or 1,300 kilometers away. And him they compelled to bear the cross all the way to a place called Golgotha, that is the place of a skull. There was a specific place outside the city walls of Jerusalem, yet still very close, where people were crucified. At this place of a skull, Jesus died for our sins and our salvation was accomplished. Golgotha, in other words, in Latin, Calvary, as it says in Luke twenty-three thirty-three, it means the place of a skull. And it was called that because it was the established place where criminals were crucified. And at this place of cruel, humiliating death outside of city walls, yet it was likely on a well-established road. And it may very well be that the hill itself had a skull-like appearance, as is the case with the site in Jerusalem that is known as Gordon's Calvary. And there, verse 34... They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. It was very customary to give those people who were about to be crucified a pain-numbing and mind-numbing drink. It was to lessen their uh, awareness of the agony that awaited them on the cross. But Jesus refused any numbing drug, any kind of narcotic. Instead, he chose to face the spiritual and physical terror with his senses wide awake. In verse 35, the first four words simply say, Then they crucified him. I find it fascinating that not one of the four Gospels is there a detailed description of what crucifixion was like. Now why? Well, I think it's for two reasons. The Bible spares us the gory descriptions of Jesus' physical agony, simply telling us, as it says here in the beginning of verse 35, then they crucified him. Well, one reason was, was because everybody in Matthew's day was well acquainted with the terror of crucifixion. But that's not the only reason. It's especially because the greater aspect of Jesus' suffering was spiritual and not physical. Now, crucifixion originated in Persia. It was developed as a form of execution because the Persians worshipped a god of the earth. And there were certain criminals that they wanted to execute off of the earth, separated from the earth. And so you couldn't stone them. You had to lift them up off of the earth. You, you couldn't just cut their head off with a sword because there they were still on the earth. And so to lift the accused criminal up off the earth, they came up with some form of crucifixion. And it was a cruel way to die. In the year 1986, 
Dr. William Edwards wrote a remarkable article in the prestigious Journal of the American Medical Association. And this was the title of the article, On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. Now following, I'm going to read you some of the quotations, some of the observations of Dr. Edwards and his associates in this article. He said, Although the Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it as a form of torture and capital punishment that was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. The victim's back was first torn open by the scourging, then opened again as the congealing, clotted blood came off with the clothing that was removed at the place of execution. When the prisoner was thrown on the ground to nail the hands to the crossbeam, the wounds were again opened on the back, deepened and contaminated with dirt. With each breath attached to the upright cross, the painful wounds on the back of the victim scraped against the rough wood of the upright beam and were further aggravated. Driving the nail through the wrist, as was customary, severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve produced lightning bolts of fiery pain in both arms, and it often resulted in a claw-like grip of the victim on the cross. Beyond the severe pain of crucifixion, the major medical effect of crucifixion was to prevent the prisoner from properly breathing. You see, the weight of the body pulling down on the arms and the shoulders tended to lock the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state. It hindered your, your um, exhalation. And this lack of adequate respiration resulted in severe muscle cramps, and that hindered your breathing even further. To, to get a good breath, you had to push against the feet, which were nailed, and you had to flex your elbows, pulling from the shoulders. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced more pain, and flexing the elbows twisted the hands that hung on the nails. Lifting the body for every breath also painfully scraped the back against the rough wooden post. Every effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and it led the victim closer to death. Now commonly, insects would land upon the victim and burrow into the open wounds and the eyes and the ears and the nose of the helpless victim, and obviously they couldn't shoo them away. What's worse, birds of prey would tear at these sights. It was often customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by whatever wild animals could come and literally take a bite from their flesh. The actual death from crucifixion could come from many different sources. It could come from acute shock from the blood loss. It could come from being too exhausted to breathe any longer. It could come from dehydration. It could come from a stress-induced heart attack or congestive heart failure that led to a cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die soon enough, 
The legs were broken, which meant that the victim could no longer breathe because he couldn't put any weight on his legs. A Roman citizen could not be crucified except by the direct order of Caesar. It was a punishment reserved for the worst criminals and the lowest classes. No wonder that the Roman statesman Cicero said of crucifixion, it is a crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him is an act of wickedness, to execute him is almost murder, What shall I say of crucifying him? It is an act so abominable, it is impossible to find any words to adequately express it. The Roman historian Tacitus called crucifixion a torture that was appropriate only for slaves. And it was appropriate only for them because they were seen as subhuman. How bad was crucifixion? We get our English word excruciating from the Roman word out of the cross. Now let me make two final points here tonight. Number one, consider how horrible our sin is in the sight of God when it requires this kind of sacrifice. Secondly, it is very important for us to remember that Jesus did not suffer as the victim of circumstances, that he, in fact, was in control the entire time. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 18. He said this, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. It is terrible for someone to be forced to endure this kind of torture. And on either side of Jesus, there were criminals who were forced to endure this kind of torture. They had no choice in it. But in the middle, there was one who freely chose it out of love. So here's my question. Do we ever have a reason to rightly doubt the love of God for us again? Has not God gone to the most extreme length conceivable to demonstrate his love for us? If you want proof that God loves you, Look back to the cross. There is no greater proof. There may be a new proof, a fresh proof, but there is no greater proof of the love of God for us than that the Son of God willingly chose this. And with this, we'll pick it up again the next time we meet. Father, when we think about this, we feel like we're on holy ground. In the eye of our mind, we can see Jesus on the cross. We can see the nails. We can see the crown of thorns. We can see the blood that covers his face. We can see the look of agony and pain upon his face. And Lord, to realize that you did this out of 
a freely chosen action, that you were not forced, that you were not the victim of circumstance, it makes us say, Lord, thank you for loving us this much. And forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, for every time I've ever doubted your love. Thank you for doing this. Keep us worshipful of you and the greatness of your work on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.